You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. When it comes to the Republican health care plan, the American Health Care Act, as the House calls their bill, the Better Care Reconciliation Act, as the Senate calls their bill, or the Obamacare repeal and go fuck yourselves, as I like to call it, Republican members of Congress, with a reach around from conservative pundits, are trying to declare the truth out of bounds. Hillary Clinton tweeted last week, forget death panels if Republicans pass this bill, they're the death party. With a link to a study from Harvard researchers that says the Senate bill could result in 18,000 to 28,000 deaths per year in 2026, by 2026. Hillary was scolded for this because, of course, she was, because she's supposed to shut up and go away now, like John Kerry and John McCain did after they lost their presidential bids. Whatever happened to those guys, anyway? But yeah, it's the truth. The truth. People will die if the Republicans get their way. People will die. People will be bankrupted. Older and sicker people will be priced out of the health insurance market. The Senate bill ends Medicaid as we know it. Medicaid is a government-run health insurance plan that covers millions of Americans, millions of pregnant women, single mothers, people with disabilities, disabled children, seniors with low incomes. Rural hospitals will close. People with pre-existing conditions will find themselves unable to get insurance. If they can get insurance, it won't cover the condition that they had that was pre-existing. And you know what? Sooner or later, we all have pre-existing conditions. Lots of us, myself included, are born with conditions, born with pre-existing conditions. And we have Republican shitbag senators out there saying that people who have pre-existing conditions have no one but themselves to blame for their pre-existing conditions. And here we are. Here we are pushing policies that will kill people. That's politics. That's just GOP elected officials keeping a promise they made to their base, pointing out that these policies will kill people. That's uncivil discourse. That's overheated rhetoric. That is not okay. But it is a fact. If this bill passes, tens of thousands of people will die. A 2009 Harvard study found that uninsured working age Americans have a 40% higher death risk than their insured counterparts. And that study, pre-Obamacare, found that 45,000 deaths per year were linked to a lack of health care coverage. Long comes Obamacare, cuts the uninsured rate in half. People still die for lack of access to health insurance under Obamacare, but fewer people die. That's why I like to call Obamacare evil, but less evil, but still evil. Because it didn't cover everyone and it wasn't designed to cover everyone. We have to remember, we liberals, we need to remind ourselves every once in a while that Obamacare, that that whole plan was the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank's alternative to single payer. And we have been backed into a corner, liberals and progressives, backed into a corner where we are endlessly having to defend what was the Republican alternative to single payer. And what we need to do, of course, now is pivot to just arguing for universal coverage for single payer, for Medicaid, for all. And hopefully we will do that. And universal coverage is in the Democratic platform, the 2016 Democratic platform, universal coverage, universal care. It is in there. It's not, however, on the lips of a lot of Democratic politicians who are out there arguing against the Obamacare repeal. 
and it needs to be, and we will get to that. Hopefully we will get to that. Hopefully we will pivot to that after we defeat the GOP plan to gut Obamacare and kill tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of us. Kill you, kill your kid, kill your mom. And that's just reality. And it can't be uncivil or out of bounds to point out the reality of the situation, that if this bill passes, Americans will die. Because the GOP plan goes further than rolling back Obamacare, ends Medicaid, puts lifetime caps on medical expenses, exceed that cap, and that is it. These are death panels on steroids. And the Republican Party, like Hillary said, if this passes, becomes the party of death. All brought to you by a con man and the voters that he managed to con. Trump promised lower cost coverage for everybody and that unlike his competitors in the Republican primaries, he wouldn't cut Medicaid or Medicare. And yet, here the fuck we are. I want to encourage people to call and call and call. If you live in Nevada, West Virginia, Maine, Alaska, Colorado, your senators need to hear from you. Dean Heller, Shelley Moore Capito, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, and Cory Gardner are all potential no votes. And we just need three Republican senators to vote no to block this thing. You can reach your senator by calling the main U.S. Senate switchboard and asking to be connected to your senator's office. That number, 202-224-3121. And it is particularly important. Again, if you live in Nevada, West Virginia, Maine, Alaska, or Colorado, or grew up there, to call your goddamn senators. Heller, Moore, Capito, Collins, Murkowski, Portman, Gardner. They need to hear from you. And Democratic senators, Democratic Congress people, they need to hear from us too. They need to hear from us that we want them after they get out of this crouch, after we defend and hopefully save Obamacare, that we need to pivot to arguing for what we don't have right now, which is universal coverage. We have cut with Obamacare the uninsured rate in half. So rather than 45,000 people dying every year for lack of access to medical care, we're down to 22,000 people dying per year for lack of access to health care. That has to end. No more arguing for Republican half measures, Republican compromises. We need to argue for Democratic solutions to our health care nightmare. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast. Tons of your questions, tons of my answers. And Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is here to talk about his new book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. It's a great book, and we have a great conversation about it. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, furries, a man's boyfriend, is super turned on by furry porn, and the caller is worried that there's bestiality in the mix, too. I I chat on the Magnum with Vero from the Feral Attraction podcast, an advice show from a furry perspective. He is hilarious, and it's an interesting conversation. Also on the Magnum, you'll hear this. In our talks, I've expressed that it's more than just my missing some tits in my face. And now, your calls. Hi, Dan. I guess I have a question about whether or not I'm being fair. I have a friend who consistently becomes intimately involved and has relationships with people who are heroin addicts. And these relationships move very quickly. And then within the course of a few days, the people are stealing from him and pawning his things and stealing his money in order to go get more heroin. And then they break up and they leave for a couple of weeks and then they come back. I've set a boundary and said, if you continue to take back these one of these two particular women and continue to date heroin addicts, I'm done. I can't be part of your life anymore. I can't handle this friendship anymore because every time, of course, he does that, I try to help him and assist him and make sure that 
he is on a seat and I know that I've enabled him. So I feel like I'm the only person putting an effort here, but I don't want to be unfair. I don't want to feel like a dick. I don't want to feel like a friend who's giving up on a person, but at this point it's a pattern and I just don't want to keep putting in my effort when he's not putting in any of his because love is cheap and dope sick love is legit. I don't think you're being unfair. Uh, we've covered this before in other circumstances where, you know, the friend or the family member who has to listen to the person complain and complain and complain about being treated like shit by X eventually has to say, you know what, if you keep going back to X or taking X back or dating X types of people, you're not allowed to complain to me about it anymore. Cause I've pointed out to you that this is bad for you or they're bad for you and you need to stop and make different choices and you keep making the same fucking choice. So I'm done. I'm done being the shoulder to cry on cause I don't want to enable you. And at some point you think this is just attention seeking behavior and it needs to fucking stop. So yeah, I don't think you're being unfair. I think you may in fact be guilty of being too kind to your friend. You perceive him as being preyed upon by these heroin addicts. And I wonder if it's not possible that your friend, despite being robbed, despite having his things pawned by these heroin addicts, isn't himself preying on them. Why does he keep picking women who are in this condition, who are vulnerable and desperate and drug-addled? Is it because he's overflowing with the milk of human kindness? Is it because he wants to help them? Is it because he is just too kind and caring? Or is he taking advantage of these women who are reeling and unhappy and strung out? Are they preying on him or is he preying on on them. You're closer to the situation, of course, than I am. You know this guy personally. You've probably seen him interact with these women. You know what his damage is. You know how he explains himself. You've witnessed it all. So if that's not your conclusion, if you don't perceive him as preying on these women, perhaps he isn't preying on these women. I'm being too cynical and my read of the situation is potentially too dark. But it seems to me that it's a possibility you might want to entertain, that your friend isn't the only victim in the circumstance. Hey Dan, um, I'm a 25 year old guy on the West coast. I've been hooking up with a guy in his late twenties that I met on Grindr last summer. The problem is that his girlfriend doesn't know. So we met last summer and before we hooked up, um, it came up in conversation that he has a girlfriend because we were talking about him being bi and stuff. And, um, I just assumed they had some kind of monogamous relationship. But after we had sex, I asked him, um, what does your girlfriend think about you hooking up with guys? And he laughed and said, she doesn't know. So I probably should have cut off contact with him at that point, but the sex was really, really good. And I've been um, hooking up with him on and off over the past year. Um, I should mention that we have safe sex and we use condoms for anal and oral. So there's basically no risk that his girlfriend's going to get anything but we do um, rim each other without any kind of barrier. He's on the down low, so he won't give me his number. We only communicate on Grindr, and he's very vague and secretive about his life and work. But um, recently we had a conversation where he revealed some personal information, and I was able to use that to find his social media. And he doesn't know that I found his social media. So I'm looking at pictures of like him and his girlfriend and what they did on the weekend, and it's pretty weird. Um, 
gave me like a fake name and like won't give me his number and now I like, have this window into his life and like his girlfriend's social media and all that stuff. And it looks like they've been together three years and I should also mention that they don't own a house or have kids together, but they do live together. So I think she should know what he's doing before they do have kids or get a house together because she's going to find out eventually. Um, but I also don't think he deserves to have his life ruined because of this. And I don't see how telling her wouldn't ruin his life. Um, she'd break up with him. People would find out why they broke up. And I don't know what his family's like. So I don't know what the social repercussions would be for him. I know she seems bad, but I really think he's a guy and I don't want to hurt him. Um, I also don't want this to blow up in my face. He has my nudes and knows where I work, where I live, but I also have his nudes, know where he lives, and now I know where he works. He has told his girlfriend because he's hooking up with a bunch of other guys, but I just have a feeling that he would be able to figure it out. So part of me thinks that he's having sex with all these other guys, so maybe it's not my problem. You know, it's not like I'm enabling him cheating because he would be doing it anyway. And he is doing it anyway when I'm not around. And then our part of me thinks, well, maybe she'll find out on her own eventually before they get married and have kids. But they've already been together three years and somehow she still hasn't found out. So, like, I don't know. Is she turning a blind eye to it? Is he lying about her not knowing? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So I'm moving this summer. So I'm leaning towards just walking away from this mess. But I also feel like I'm in this unique position where I actually know like who he is and who the girlfriend is. And so maybe I should tell her what's going on. I don't know. I'm leaning towards just like walking away. But I don't know. How, is there a way to tell her what's going on without this like blowing up in my face? I don't know, Dan. Uh, any advice would be appreciated. I am every bit as conflicted as you are, caller. I don't know what to tell you to do. On the one hand, you could and maybe you should walk away. You could have and should have walked away a year ago. I think you'd be feeling right now a whole lot less guilt had you walked away a year ago when he first told you or however long ago it was when he told you that his girlfriend didn't know that he was hooking up not just with a guy but apparently with scores of guys and I wonder if on some level your desire to reach out and let his girlfriend know who it is that she's living with and sleeping with and potentially one day marrying isn't an effort to expunge your guilt and sort of get you off the hook for your complicity in not just what he's done to his girlfriend but what you've helped him do to his girlfriend. And I'm sorry, you use condoms for anal and oral sex but not for rimming and therefore, the sex isn't 100% safe. And even with condoms and without rimming, condoms for oral, condoms for anal, it's not 100% safe because there are skin-to-skin -skin contact, sexually transmitted infections that condoms offer some protection for but not perfect or 100% protection for. You're doing a really good job protecting yourself using condoms that way from syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV, uh, not doing such a great job with condoms all by themselves protecting yourself from from herpes or HPV, and therefore not a good job protecting her from herpes or HPV. So I wonder if your desire to reach out and let her know now, now when you're moving away, and I think that's kind of an incriminating detail, something you should probably contemplate, 
you're on your way out the door and now you're going to tell the girlfriend what's up. You didn't tell her what was up when you were fucking him or still wanting to fuck him. But now that you're not going to be fucking him anymore, now you're going to toss over your shoulder the news to the girlfriend that her boyfriend is a cheating piece of shit who's putting her at risk and therefore not sacrificing anything yourself. You kept his dick coming for as long as you could and on your way out, you called it. All that said, she probably deserves to know. And at some point, she's going to find out anyway. If he's having sex with lots of other guys, if he's being this reckless, she's going to find out sooner or later and better sooner than later. And why not you? And if you put yourself in her shoes for just a moment, wouldn't you want someone to let you know? Whether he was cheating with guys or girls or rutabagas or elephants, who knows? You would want someone to let you know before you married or scrambled your DNA together with this dirt bag. And who knows, maybe once the news is out there and once he's outed to her, which is a brutal tactic, as I've said a million times and should be reserved for brutes. But what this guy is doing is kind of brutal to her and what you helped him do and participated in or complicit in is also kind of brutal to her. And so maybe he has the outing coming and you never know what's going to happen after infidelities Serial cheating is revealed. Now, most cases, serial cheating, this kind of cheating is not something a relationship can survive. But who knows? People often have these long, drawn-out, hashed-out conversations after infidelities are exposed. And they come to a different understanding about their relationship and how it's going to work. Maybe she's been chomping at the bit to eat pussy or to have sex with other guys. And they can transition to a non-monogamous or monogamous relationship and an honest one as opposed to the non-monogamous, dishonest relationship she finds herself in now or hasn't found herself and isn't aware that she's in now. So yeah, I doubt your motives. They are not pure. But I think she deserves to know and needs to know. And somebody's going to reach out and tell her. And you worry that he has your nudes. He knows where you live. He knows where you work. You have his nudes. So mutually assured destruction. And you now know where he lives and works. And maybe that'll protect you. But also if he's sleeping with lots of other guys... An anonymous account created on some social media platform where you can reach out to her on that same social media platform and let her know what he's been up to. Unlikely that could be traced back to you. I get so many calls from people who are 10 years, 15 years into a marriage and a couple of young children into a marriage uh, who've just discovered that their partner has this secret second life and that had they known they never would have married or yoked themselves to that person really for the rest of their lives by scrambling their DNA together. And they wish often that someone, one of the people that their husband or wife had been cheating with all these years or all those years before they married had said something to them. They wish they had found out because the disruption before marriage, when they were just living together would have been more manageable than the disruption or the efforts to extricate themselves from the relationship are once there's marriage and children and divorce and custody battles uh, involved in parting. Yeah, I guess I come down on the side of let her know. Let her know what he's been up to. And don't do this shit again. And if you find yourself in a circumstance like this again, don't keep fucking the guy until you're ready to move or you're done with him and then let the girlfriend know. You're not white knighting at that point. You are in a way assuaging your own guilt and perhaps retaliating against the guy and not from the moral high ground either. 
up from the sewer where you've been standing with him for a long time. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from California. I am a 33-year-old African-American straight woman, big fan of your show, and I am calling today because I have a specific question that I'm almost embarrassed to ask this question because it might make me sound like kind of a bigoted idiot, but this is anonymous, so I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. One of my closest friends is a gay man. We've been very close friends since college. And over the years, um, we've known each other for 14 years now. And he's a good person, has been a wonderful friend, except for he has one major personality flaw. And that is that when he is, he's a very insecure person. And when he is in a situation where he's feeling bad about himself, he lashes out at other people, basically by putting them down, making insults. Um, basically, he's one of those people who likes to build himself up by putting other people down. Like, for example, I used to be overweight when I was in college, and I do have some body image issues. And for like, if we're going out to eat, he'll say, like, oh, let's you had three slices of pizza tonight. Oh, I guess the diet's over. And then he'll start making jokes about how the last time he went to the beach, how, you know, fat my thighs looked and cellulite and all that. It's really cruel things. And anytime someone tries to call him on it, he'll kind of get out of it by saying, oh, I was just joking around or, oh, what? I was just being honest. But really, he's just being a jerk because anytime somebody makes him feel small, he lashes out. And anyways, um, about six months ago, everything kind of came to a head with him when I introduced him to a man I've been seeing, a new man I really have been falling in love with, and I don't have a great track record with men, which is another thing he likes to make fun of. But anyway, we, after I was dating this guy for about six months, um, we decided to go hang out so he could meet him, and the second we got to the restaurant, we kind of went to this outdoor bar-type restaurant, he just started it on me, just kind of making fun of me, telling um, my new boyfriend, you know, how fat I used to be and that he should watch out for that. And he was also saying, oh, wow, you know, this guy, he's so handsome. He's so good looking. What the hell is he doing with you? And also my new boyfriend happens to be Caucasian. And she's like, oh, he must have a black girl fetish because what the hell should he be doing with you? You know, he could have any woman in the world. And at that point, that was the last straw. And I kind of told him at that point, you know, I've put up with your crap, but you're just an asshole. You know, you have a lot of good qualities, but I'm done. And I told this story to a mutual friend of ours and said, you know, he and I aren't friends anymore, so just we're never going to hang out together anymore. And she said, you know, she understood why, why I was upset, but then said, well, I need to be more sensitive because have you noticed that he only behaves this way when straight men are around? And it was something I had never really noticed before, but looking back over the 14 years that I've known him, his social circle of friends solely consists of other gay men and women, mostly straight women. And looking back again, over time, I've noticed that when it's just he and I, when just the two of us are hanging out or if we're hanging out with other female friends or with his other gay friends, everything's fine. You know, he's fun to be around, good person, good friend. But anytime we're in a social situation where a straight man is around, like if one of our female friends brings her boyfriend or husband or if one of you know, someone else just brings a straight friend around, he almost becomes a different person. He becomes very anxious and very mean. And that's when he starts kind of lashing out with these, I guess, microaggressions, as the kids call them today. And and then my question to you is, and again, this is probably a really stupid, stupid, bigoted question, because it's 
2017. We live in Los Angeles, but I was wondering, is this a thing? Are some gay men anxious or uncomfortable around straight men, which is why he's acting this way? And do I need to be more understanding of that? Or is this guy just a jerk, asshole, insecure bitch that I need to just, you know, cut out of my life? You present me with an either or choice. Is this a thing? Are some gay men anxious around straight men or is he an asshole? Both those things can be true. It's not necessarily either or. Some gay men are definitely nervous around straight men. Some gay men you know, grew up being bullied and brutalized by straight men. And even if they weren't bullied or brutalized by straight men, some gay men lived in constant fear of being outed and being bullied by homophobic relations, family members, parents, and homophobic peers and classmates. And they're just flinchy around straight guys, even if they never got punched in the face by a straight guy for being gay, although many gay men have been punched in the face by straight guys for being gay. Some gay men are just flinchy and nervous and anxious around straight guys. That doesn't excuse being an asshole to you about your weight, the color of your skin, your relationship history. You put up with a lot of, I don't think those are quite microaggressions like the kids call them. Those are kind of macroaggressions. And if we're going to be compassionate for this guy who's been such a shitty non-friend to you in the presence of straight men. All right, let's armchair psychoanalyze him. He's nervous around straight guys. He's afraid of straight guys. He's afraid that straight guys are going to do violence for him. So he grabs the nearest straight girl or friend and throws that person under the bus to deflect attention away from his homosexuality, which he worries will attract negative attention from whatever straight guy happens to be in the room with him. He starts pointing out the negative qualities, theoretically negative, subjectively negative qualities of other people in the room. He starts pointing the straight guy's attention toward your weight as it used to be and throwing you under the bus. And that's not okay. Even if that's what's going on, there are limits to what you should have to put up with because somebody else has damage and the onus is on him to fix himself, to get into fucking therapy, to unpack that, particularly if it's costing him friendships, long-term friendships and destroying his relationships with loving caring, compassionate friends like you. If you owe him anything, it is perhaps this insight that your friend shared with you. You send him a note, send him an email, say, I don't want to be your friend anymore because this happens. And this always happens in the presence of a straight guy. I think you have some sort of fear or flight response in the presence of straight guys. And you instantly, when a straight guy is in the room, start beating other people up. Maybe because you're afraid that if the straight guy looks at you too long, and notices your flaws that he might start beating you up. And that's not a rational fear, but sometimes we struggle with irrational fears and insecurities and we act out in strange ways. Strange and, in this case, completely unacceptable ways. Cruel and sadistic ways. You should tell him that and say, you need to get your fucking ass to a therapist. Or this tick of yours, this asshole tick of yours, is going to destroy every friendship that you ever have. Because you know what? They say, we like to say, you know, gay people, we are everywhere. No, you know who's everywhere? Fucking straight people are everywhere because there are a lot more fucking straight people. So everywhere you go, there are going to be straight guys. And if this is how you act in the presence of a straight guy, and I'm not the only one who's noticed this pattern, you're going to nuke your fucking life. You're going to be friendless and alone in life. And you don't want to be friendless and alone. So get to fucking work on this. Maybe after a couple of years of therapy, we can circle back and reconnect and see if we can be friends. But that first time that we meet up, I'm bringing four straight guys. 
with me. Not to bash you, just to test you and make sure that you have overcome this. And then maybe we can be friends again, but right now we can't be friends. You put up with a lot more shit from this quote-unquote friend than I would have put up with or that anyone should have put up with. There's a limit to compassion and tolerance of somebody else's shitty behavior. Somebody can behave in shitty, hateful, awful ways because they suffered themselves. And that is an explanation perhaps. That is a context, but it is not an excuse. It's not a license to move through life being a cruel and vicious asshole and treating the other people around you who had nothing to do with your damage like shit. He needs to take responsibility for that and he doesn't get and he doesn't deserve a pass for that. Certainly not any more passes from you. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because we have a very special guest. All right, people lie. Ask someone who they're going to vote for. Ask them about their sexual orientation, about their porn use, how many condoms they go through in a month. And odds are good. They're going to lie to you. Researchers and pollsters, they know it. They try to control for it, but it's a guessing game. Economist, data scientist, and New York Times writer Seth Stevens Davidowitz discovered a place where everybody seems to be telling the truth. Google searches. He's the author of Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Hey, Seth, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Dan. So for the tech illiterate, uh, and I count myself amongst their number, what is big data and how do we distinguish it from little data? Uh, basically, the idea is data used to be small surveys that you ask a few hundred people, uh, what are you going to do? Why do you do the things you're going to, why do you do the things you do? What do you want? And now big data is tends to be data from the internet uh, where we just watch people go through their lives and uh you know, enormous data sets that not only are bigger than we've ever had, but frequently are more honest and more real than any data we've ever previously had. Why are people more honest online when they're asking questions and, and thinking? <laughs> uh, well, there, 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 there are a couple of reasons. So on Google, in a survey, you never have an incentive to tell the truth. Uh, so if you have a sexual desire and someone asks you that in a survey, people just assume, well, why do I need to admit it to some random person asking me? I, I get nothing out of this. Mm -hmm. But have an incentive to type this into a computer, into a search engine, uh, because you, you, you can see the material that you want. And then the strange thing that I learned in doing this research uh, is that people bizarrely confess things to Google. They might type something like, I hate my boss, or I'm sad, or I'm drunk on Google, mm -hmm. without any obvious reason that Google can help. It's almost like the confessional in Catholicism. Uh, people use Google in that way these days. So everybody lies is the title of the book, but everybody doesn't lie about everything, correct? But about, mo uh, about yeah, some true. things, in deeply personal things are, are what people tend to lie about, because they, they have this desire to be perceived as functional, or normal, or healthy, and then you get online and you are who you actually are. You want to watch the porn you actually want to watch, not watch the porn or pretend to want to watch the porn that other people think you should be watching. So you tell the truth online. And that's what this big data reveals is what these, these truths are, that, that, that little data that surveys in the past couldn't quite capture. Is that accurate? Exactly. All right. That's exactly right, yeah. I, I want to share something with you that's in my column next week. I, I wrote this and sent it out and then I read your book. Uh, and I feel like uh, I might have to revise this statement. I got this question. It's short. Incest porn. What is the reason behind why it is so hot? And I wrote, I reject the premise of your question. There's nothing hot about incest porn. <laughs> yeah, so definitely uh, incest porn is shockingly popular. Ah, that's so disturbing. Oh, my God. I have to lie down in a dark room. It's just so disturbing. 
It's yeah. Well, so I like uh, I started telling people they're like, "What's the most shocking thing you found in porn?" And I'm like, "The popularity of incest porn." And then some people are like, "That's not shocking." And I'm like, "Am I a square because I find that just weird and disturbing?" I don't know. Uh, but if it disturbs you as well, then I think I'm not square for. We're finding it, that uh, it, it does distribute. You know, I, I, when my first boyfriend a million years ago uh, had a bunch of porn that he liked, and he said, "Oh, we should watch this." And the title was "Brothers Should Do It," and I was like, "No, no, we shouldn't watch that. I have brothers. There's nothing sexy about that title. It makes me want to jump yeah. out the window." But reading your right. book discovered I, I've learned something that even I didn't know that incest porn is shockingly popular, which I find shockingly distasteful. And not as not only is it really popular, so part of it is just like it's a taboo, and I think people like watching things that they're not supposed to watch and someone watching incest porn doesn't necessarily isn't fantasizing about having sex with a family member. But then if you look at searches for, I want to have sex with, or I'm attracted to like a huge percentage of those searches are for family members too. So like this really is, I think a somewhat common desire that people have and never talk about. Okay. That's not a piece of data that you uncovered that I like very much and I'm very comfortable with, but there's actually something that you uncovered that I, that I loved uh, because it confirms something I've always believed and long said, and that's that couples who do everything together, who share all the same friends are less likely to stay together than couples who have their own friends and spend some time apart. Where did you find that in the pile of big data out there? Yeah. So that's from Facebook data. So from Facebook, Facebook knows when people are in a relationship and then out of a relationship. And they also know the friend structure. So do you have share the same friends or do you have separate social networks? And it turns out, just as you said, and going against a lot of conventional wisdom, relationships are more likely to last if you have separate social circles if you, uh, rather than if you all share the same group of friends. Which is contrary to, to to the assumptions that so many people make these days, where you know you're the person you're with, your you know your live-in partner or your spouse is supposed to be your best friend, which places all sorts of strains on a relationship. The best friend and the lover spouse used to be two different roles in a person's life, and we've combined it into one role. We're horrible at making decisions and knowing what's good for us. So all these things come become conventional wisdom of what what we're supposed to do or what. Uh, will make us happy or what will lead to a successful relationship. And uh, a huge percentage of the time, these theories are just dead wrong. Uh, and the data can kind of correct our faulty guesses about what works and what doesn't work. One of the things that's been hardest for people to get a hard number about, starting with Alfred Kinsey a million years ago, is how many people out there are gay. Because there's a lot of incentive in a culture where gay people may be discriminated against or subjected to violence or have been brought up in a faith tradition that tells them that it's sick or sinful or they're going to hell if they're gay. It's really hard to get an honest answer when you ask somebody uh, if he's gay or not. But you think you found it in the data? Uh, well, I, I think I have a, a pretty good estimate. I don't know. You know it, I mean, it's, it's hard to define exactly what it means. Uh, to be gay, it's not something that, that you know, the, the number's not, we're never going to know exactly like 4.8673% of men are gay. Uh, but I think it's somewhere in the range of 5% mm -hmm. of men are gay. It's definitely not 10%, as, as Kinsey initially said, and it's not 2%. Uh, so so if, if you ask people in surveys now, you get about 2% or 3% of men say they're gay. Mm -hmm. And the number's way lower in places where it's hard to be gay, in places like Mississippi and Tennessee and South Carolina. But if you look at porn data, it's a little bit lower there because some men who are born in Mississippi move out to places where it's easier to be gay, to California or D.C. or New York. Mm -hmm. But it's not much lower. It's a close to 5% uh, everywhere. 
So I think, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhere in that in the neighborhood of, of, of 5% of men, I would say. But not everybody who's watching gay porn is gay. There's a lot of women out there who watch gay male porn. There's pre- there may be some bi guys out there who are watching gay porn or people who are watching taboo porn to crank themselves up. So is it a is it a perfect measure? No, definitely not. I, I well, I try to divide it into men versus women, which also isn't perfect because in the internet nobody knows you're a dog, so it's a little <laughs> imprecise. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, th- I think I, again, it's it's not. I don't want to say that it's a that it's a perfect measure. It's exactly five percent. I also look at some data from Facebook on where gay men are born. Like there are some parts of the country where now it's it's much. It's you know just about. Uh, I think it's 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 fairly easy to be gay if you're a high school student in Berkeley, California, mm-hmm. or certain parts of the Bay Area, and and there it approaches about five percent. So that's another way to to look at at the data. But yeah. I think uh, I I definitely don't think I, I definitely don't think we can use this data uh, just as you say it's it's imprecise. But you can kind of say it's not ten percent because if it was ten if it were ten percent, there would just be a lot more gay porn being searched. And I think there would also be a lot more uh, gay men gay men among uh, you know, younger men born in Berkeley or, or, or San Francisco, and it's not two percent just because uh, there would be there. There clearly are more gay men in Mississippi or Alabama than say they're gay. So we kind of can kind of narrow the range around five percent, even if we can't know exactly for sure what how many. And, and as you say, if it's not, it's it's not so easy to define anyway. So you know, this is a sex and relationship advice show, and I, I'm asking a lot of questions about. The sex stuff in the book, which is fascinating, and well, it's a, it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty big theme because that's kind of one area where people do lie so much, particularly in the United States, because there's so much taboo around talking about sex. So uh, it is, and 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 I think the porn data is pretty revolutionary. Uh, look into sexuality uh, relative to the data we previously had. But just so people who uh, are going to pick up the book, and I encourage people to pick up the book, it's it's fascinating, and, and I loved it. Uh, so they're braced. What initially brought you uh, to this data set or, or made you uh, assess it in this way and begin to dig was really disturbing stuff about race and racism and people's racist attitudes. Yeah, yeah. So I started this research back in 2012. And back in that day, those days, people thought we lived in a post-racial society. Uh, and if you ask people in surveys, uh, you know, are you racist? You know, nobody says they're racist. Or do you care that Obama was black when you were deciding whether to vote for him? And nobody says that they cared. But I was shocked on Google, the frequency with which people made racist searches, uh, particularly for jokes mocking African-Americans. And I was also shocked where people were making these searches, that these searches were not just concentrated in the deep south, where I, where uh, historically we have thought as, of racism as being highest, but also were many places in the north, in industrial Michigan and western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio and upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And then uh, these racist searches on Google were predicting a lot of behaviors, particularly in the political realm, such as opposing Barack Obama or in the recent election, supporting Donald Trump in the primary. It's so distressing. It's so incriminating. You know, there's a story that we like to tell ourselves about where we are as a culture, particularly a story we like to tell ourselves and we really enjoyed hearing after the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and his re-election in 2012. And it's not borne out by the data. There's a lot more racism boiling under the surface, as I think is now undeniably evident by the because of the election of Donald Trump than AT&T commercials and a lot of the crap on television would have led us to believe. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and I think it's it's better to know that. And I think it's also a lot of, you know, I talk about not just racism against blacks. So though I think, uh, it, to be honest, from the online data, I studied all kinds of, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and 
uh, anti-gay attitudes and, and anti-woman attitudes. But I really think the number one uh, one that takes the cake in, in, in people's online behavior is, is this racism against black people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think for, for African-Americans, uh, a lot of the, a lot of African-Americans have read my book and have, uh, you know, given me feedback. And I think there is something a little, uh, obviously it's really disturbing, but there is, there is a little bit of like, we told you, so, like we right. told you so. And yeah, it, we're it, not crazy. I, I don't think yeah, like like I you know I talk, I talked to a black friend about the book who and I was telling him about the the, the the beginning of the book where you start with these racial attitudes and people searching for racist jokes and he looked at me and said yeah we're not we haven't been lying to you we're not crazy <laughs> yeah I know yeah so it is like a little bit uh, yeah exactly so like so I think it is a little validating maybe because uh, you know this is something that African Americans have been saying for years that despite what people were saying in surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they really are victims of racism in large numbers. And I think this data just makes it unambiguous. All right. Zooming out from the race and sex issues, what's the ultimate takeaway uh, from everybody lies? Trust no one. Or if you really want to know who someone is, look at their Google search history. Well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's trust no one. I think there is a little bit, I, I like to do it as an optimistic book in a way in that, we can change the world and improve the world if we know the truth. Don't, don't trust necessarily surveys or what people are telling us, but if we look at the online data, we can learn the truth and ultimately improve society. So The survey tells us who we wish we were, but the big data set tells us who we actually are, and we should probably... Who we actually are, but maybe with it, we can turn who we actually are closer to who we wish we are uh, if we have enough data on, on this. So uh, I, I don't think we should... I don't think we just have to throw up our hands and say, oh, we're all horrible. I think we can say, okay, there is a lot of bad stuff and we can maybe learn how to uh, fix this. The book is Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, thank you so much for coming on the show. I I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book and I was thrilled to get to talk to you about it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Dan. I'm a big fan of the show. Hey, Dan. I am a 31-year-old a bisexual female living on the East Coast. Um, I just got out of a relationship of five or six years, and so I'm quote-unquote back on the market. And of all the questions I've thought to ask you over the years, I never thought this would be the one, but here I am. Uh, Hey, Dan, what the fuck do we do about ghosters? So if I haven't met someone in person and he ghosts me, is that okay? If I've seen someone a couple times and then I get ghosted, am I supposed to just let it go? Uh, what response means I'm being desperate and which means that I'm sticking up for myself? I just, uh, shit, damn, these are new. <laughs> this is a brand new world. Silence is the new, it's not you, it's me. Welcome back to the dating scene. In the ghosting era, you can call people, you can keep texting them and demanding uh, an explanation, demanding a reason why they went silent on you, why they ghosted you. And even if they call you back, even if they give you a reason, it's not going to be the reason. It's going to be an excuse. It's going to be a face-saving white lie and a your face-saving white lie. It's going to be, it's not you, it's me. It's just not right. So, da, da, da. Uh, I think that it's a cowardly thing to do just to go silent on someone. I think silence is more painful than a text saying, look, I'm just not interested, but thank you. It was nice to meet you. But it seems to be an established social more now. It seems to be a social norm 
that someone who goes silent on you, you are supposed to provide closure to yourself. I think closure is something we do for ourselves, not something that people do for us and just read into that what it means. They're not interested. That's why they're not responding to your texts anymore. That's why you're not hearing from them anymore. They are not interested. And that's the best explanation you're ever going to get because people – because people aren't monsters. Even people who ghost people aren't necessarily monsters. Typically don't and shouldn't bust out all the real reasons they're not interested in continuing to see you because they could be shattering or ego shredding or fill someone with insecurities about – their bodies or their looks or their breath or the size and shape of their genitalia or whatever else, whatever the real reasons are why they aren't interested. He will never give the real reasons. We always have to wonder what the real reason might be and wonder if it was indeed us. And if it keeps happening over and over again, maybe it is us and there's something about ourselves that we need to sit down with friends and ask for their honest, brutal feedback about so we can maybe make some changes around the margins. Hard to change who we really are at our cores, but around the margins, maybe we can listen more on dates. Maybe we can practice better personal hygiene. Whatever the reasons you get, not from the people who dumped you, but from your friends when you sit them down and ask them why I keep getting ghosted or dumped and ask for their brutal, honest feedback. Those reasons, maybe you can do something about those. But yeah, ghosting, it's a thing. It's how people do it now or don't do it now or stop doing it or stop doing you now. Welcome to this brave new world of cowards. Hi, Dan. I am a 35-year-old gay lady um, living in the Midwest. I am uh, recently, meaning recently in the past six plus months out of a relationship uh, with my partner of two and a half years. And we're, we are both in a kind of a conundrum that we were discussing last night that we, um, we broke up because she is somebody that uh, needs a lot more space than I do and doesn't really want to do the whole like getting together and like living together and all that. And also my sex drive is a lot higher than hers and hers is like, like sometimes non-existent. So from listening to your show, I know that you cannot change someone's sex drive um, because I have definitely tried um, uh, on both sides. I've tried to suppress mine and we've tried to schedule and increase hers and that just never really seemed to work and just, I think, led to resentment. But anyways, we broke up um, last fall and we have kind of navigated into this comfortable friendship where um, we are, we are each other's favorite person. You know, we can even say we're like best friends, but it's like a romantic friendship and it's great. We spend um, multiple days a week together. It's never um, sexual. Um, It sometimes feels like I'm still attracted to her and I'm still in love with her and I'm you know, and, and like, a, it, it feels good. It feels cozy. Um, and, um, you know, we talk about, will the other person ever find somebody else? And what will we do? Will we end our friendship? Like, will like, what will happen? I guess my question is to you is, what do you do with a romantic friendship with your ex? And you love them a lot. Does this mean that, like, we should, like, not hang out as much? Should we? It's, I don't know if we even can do that, because we just enjoy each other's company so much. But, is it stopping us from growing um, and finding somebody else? We don't necessarily either want to find anybody else. I don't know. I'm curious what changed when you dumped your girlfriend. You spent a lot of time together, but not all your time together because she needs her space and you didn't have a lot of sex. And now that you are no longer officially together, you spend a lot of time together, but not all your time together, multiple days a week, and you aren't having sex. So it sounds like you changed the official Facebook designation of this relationship without it actually changing anything about the relationship. 
Now, in answer to your question, what do I think of this kind of romantic friendship? It's really common in gay land for people, for gay men, to be close friends, often best friends, with an ex-boyfriend. And the same thing with lesbians. You meet a lot of lesbians who are close friends or even best friends with an ex-girlfriend. And I don't think that's about gayness or lesbianism. I think that's about maleness and femaleness. There's some things from male land that gay men do and some things from female land that women do. And in male land and female land, most men, their best friends, their closest friends are other men. And, you know, with women, their best friends, closest friends are other women. And I do think there's this dynamic at play often when people are homos where they sometimes meet someone and mistake a friendship attraction for a romantic attraction. And they end up being in a romantic relationship with someone who is not their romantic partner, with someone who is their best friend. And it's not particularly erotic, that best friend connection, that best friend relationship. And then people will downgrade that relationship to what it should have been all along, which is the friendship and manage to salvage the friendship out of that relationship. I think that's a positive thing. It can be a negative thing, though, when there's that romantic friendship dynamic at play that makes someone who might be interested in you feel like they can't compete with the intensity of the romantic friendship connection you have with your ex or prevents you from getting out there and finding someone else who might want to compete or someone else you might want to bond with romantically and sexually because your need for intimacy, your need for romance, if not your need for sex, is being met by this friend with whom you have this intense romantic-ish, friendship-ish connection. Often we only go out there and find what we need if there's a vacuum in our lives. If there's, if you'll excuse the expression, a hole in your life that you need to fill or a hole in you that you need to fill. And then you will do the work of getting out there and finding that other person or those other persons who can fill that hole for you. If you're spending all of your downtime, all of your free time, time you might otherwise be heading out to bars with other friends who are single or cruising around on OkCupid or Tinder looking for romance, if all of that time, all of your extra time, all of your seeking others' time is being filled, is being dominated, is being dedicated to this other person, if their claim on your time and their claim on your attention is so great. And if the intimacy they provide you is so satisfactory that you don't really feel you're missing out on anything except, of course, the sex that you theoretically enter this relationship to go and find, it can disincentivize getting out there and finding it. So rather than end the relationship, I would just, if I were in your shoes, strategically dial it back a bit. Instead of spending multiple days a week hanging out with your friend, that you broke up with because she needed her space and you needed sex, spend a couple of days a week with her or one day a week with her and dedicate that other day or those two other days that you used to spend with her to getting yourself out there and finding a new romantic partner, someone who doesn't have to be your best friend. Those should be two different roles, best friend, romantic partner, two different roles. We rely on best friends and romantic partners for different things. So you can have your ex in your life as in this new role as best friend, and you can have a girlfriend too. And you have to strike a balance between the time you spend with one and the time you spend with the other and the time you spend with both of them or in your wider social circle altogether. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm the Hatfresh Tech Savvy Youth. I am a woman living in Toronto. I'm extremely femme, 32, a pansexual woman in a hetero-presenting relationship. Um, we live together, uh, are working to build a life together and have been together just over two years. And for the most part, we are excellent communicators. Before we committed to each other, my partner, who 
is in a touring band, had a lot of Tinder, no foreplay, wham bam encounters, and really just one long-term committed relationship that didn't seem very mature. He credits me to his unfolding of new experiences, new emotional experiences within sex and communication, uh, within committed relationships, and he is now so into it. Uh, he's he's very, very straight, perhaps the straightest person I've ever dated, and doesn't have many queer or trans or poly friends like I do. I'm a pretty loud feminist, though I wasn't always this way. And it's just been in the last two years that I feel safe to use my voice and his support and encouragement is actually a big part of that. Um, he's working really hard at being a supportive ally to myself and in general, we have recently been discussing my personal queerness and often the discussions start after I've had a really nice romantic dinner with queer friends. After those dinners, I feel fueled and I come home to a guy that I, I think doesn't and can't fully understand what I'm feeling. I'm accepting of this, but I am starting to miss certain aspects of my queerness. I've realized that I deeply miss being with women specifically my partner and I have discussed inviting women into our relationships and into the bedroom, and he seems to be understanding of this need, but at the end of the day, I feel like he just thinks it would be super sexy to see me with another woman. I should also mention that he has expressed that to me, um, but it's way more for me um, than just sex. I miss many things about being with a woman. In our talks, I've expressed that it's more than just my missing some tits in my face. Um, but I'm not sure he fully understands exactly what my queerness means to me and how it defines me. I'm not sure he would be emotionally prepared for the, the connection that I could make with another woman, uh, though it feels wrong for me to assume that, having not had it. I'm not sure how to gauge if he is being responsive of this idea because he really wants to have a threesome or if he understands that my queerness is still a big part of me which obviously includes the need and desire to fuck other people, particularly women. I've asked a lot of questions regarding his feelings on this, but somehow it always winds up in dirty talk land, especially when he's away on tour and it's over text. How do I tell him exactly what being with a woman means to me? And how do I articulate this without being dismissive of his feelings or the feelings that might arise within him? He's never been in the threesome before. He's never dated anyone that's queer before. And I, I will always want to be with a woman, but I also want to be with him. What is it that you want? Queer sex or queer theory? Because it sounds like you're getting bogged down on the ladder. Your boyfriend is game for what it is that you want to do. You want to have sex with another woman. You want to have a sexual connection with another woman. You want to have intimacy with another woman. And he approves. And maybe his approval comes from a self-interested place. Maybe his approval of what it is you've laid in front of him that you want is selfish because it, the idea of you with another woman turns him on. What a great place to start. Take that yes for an answer. What better way to determine or gauge how your boyfriend's going to respond to you being truly intimate and truly connected with another woman than your boyfriend witnessing that? And if what gets your boyfriend to be there to witness that that first time is the fact that it makes his dick hard, okay. So there's something in it for him too initially. Maybe there's more 
at play than he and his dick may realize now. But good place to start that you're not having to drag him into this three-way unwillingly. Would you prefer that he was opposed to you having a three-way? Would you prefer that he wanted you to be strictly monogamous with him and you had to fight him to be with another woman? Probably not. Better that he wants this to happen than he doesn't want it to happen. Stop, to use a queer theory kind of word, interrogating his motives and take yes for an answer and then use your words. When he gets all bonery about it, when you guys are talking about it and it slips into dirty sex and dirty text messaging about it, chime in every once in a while to remind him that for you it's not just sex. That for you, it is intimacy. For you, it is connection. That you want to have relationships with women. That you are bisexual and perhaps poly. And what you're asking of him isn't just the straight guy fantasy three-way, watching his girlfriend with another woman, but something that's about you too. And it can be about the both of you. Not just about him and his desires, but you and your desire. Not just your desire to have some tits in your face and your desire to have that queer connection with another woman and he'll probably sign off on it. He'll probably say, yeah. And on some level you'll worry, you'll wonder if it's just his dick saying yes. Cause what his dick wants is to watch the two of you and another woman doing it in front of him. But the only way to find out if he's capable of more than that, if he's capable of really recognizing the connection that you have with another woman is to go and forge that connection with another woman in his presence during sex and after sex. And if it's an ongoing connection, as that relationship grows and unfolds. So take that yes for an answer. And it, yeah, maybe his dick and his unenlightened attitude towards women having sex with women that gets him in the door, gets him through that bedroom door initially, but you can't predict where he'll go or what epiphanies or realizations he will have as a result of entering that space, that queer space with you. Hi, Dan. I've been dating this guy. Uh, we met at work. The problem I'm having is he is, uh, he's a furry. I didn't know what that was um, until I had looked it up. And um, I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that he's really into furry porn. Um, he's addicted to it. Uh, but not just that, he's into bestiality porn a lot. And I discovered it through... Uh, asking him, um, I really wanted to look at his, uh, what the kind of porn that was getting him off so much. And the problem is it's really impacting our uh, sex life a lot. And um, he has all these complicated uh, anxiety issues when we're, when we're intimate and um, everything about our relationship is wonderful. We're very compatible. Um, we we're into the same things. Everything is great. Um, we love each other very deeply and it's, a, it's been very, very hard. We've been having this really hard time lately and we've figured out that everything goes downhill when we have sex and the problem is if we don't come at the same time and with me doing all the work because he's, he's a bottom and the time between him coming and me either jerking myself off and and me coming the, his anxiety levels just go through the roof and it creates all these doubts and it's his doubts are is he only attracted to animals is he only attracted to furry porn. Sometimes he can't get boners unless he's uh, looking at the furry porn or looking at his bestiality porn. Now, the, the, the bestiality thing is a whole other thing. That's something I choose to just ignore. But I don't even know how to approach this. Like, do I'm afraid to even go to like a psychologist about it or 
um, a psychiatrist or is there, are there drugs? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what to do. Um, I cannot talk to family about this. I don't think anybody would understand when people ask about it, what's going on. They know that we have like a problem or something's going on. I just sort of say trust that we're working on it and that he has like anxiety problems. I don't know that there is a solution other than just moving on. Um, but I really don't want to do that. Joining me by phone to help tackle this one, Vero. He is the co-host of the Furry Relationship Advice podcast, Feral Attraction. Hey, Vero. Hey. How are you? I'm doing well. I feel like we should make a little courteous and polite small talk before we dive into this question. <laughs> That's fair. So uh, what'd you have for breakfast? How was it? How's your day? I'm a soylent person. I, I drank some coffee this morning, so I'm both caffeinated and well-nutrified, uh, I suppose. All right. Well, that's enough small talk. Here we go. I, I'm sure this topic is going to make some people in the furry community uncomfortable because uh, whenever anyone sort of invokes the specter of bestiality in relationship to furrydom, a lot of people get upset and say there is no overlap. But certainly in it would seem in this, the case of this guy's furry identified boyfriend, there is some overlap there. Yeah. So this is a. I mean, this is I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if I don't tread very carefully with this question, I think. But I'm just going to try to decatastrophize a little bit. I think the caller might be creating a bit of a problem where none needs to exist. I think what's happening here, and I think you know, it's certainly justified to think in this kind of a way, but the caller sounds really kind of deeply squicked by what is turning his partner on, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think he's kind of problematizing the fact that his partner even has these desires. But I think it's really important to remember that desire itself is harmless, right? And we kind of can choose how to channel that and how to respond to it. And we don't really want to punish your your you know your boyfriend for having thought crimes where you know wanting to you know wanting to have to, to enjoy you know animal traits or animal qualities without necessarily enjoying animals right so you can really be turned on by the animal qualities mm -hmm. and maybe be turned on by the, that in pornography but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going out to you know your nearest farm and and you know running in the fields right like that that's kind of another level it's kind of you know, the same way we talk about. With you know, with pedophiles, sometimes that you know, we don't want to punish thought crimes. We don't want to we want to punish offending pedophiles. We don't want to punish the you know the thought of of being turned on by by those qualities. So right, there's a difference between a pedophile right. and a child molester or a child rapist. Exactly. So I think one thing is you know you're talking about your partner having all this this you know really anxiety about sex with you, and I think part of that's actually coming from you kind of heaping on shame. It sounds like he actually has a lot of internalized shame that is causing uh, problems in the relationship right now. And you're actually kind of piling onto that by making him feel like his desires are so, are so, you know, you're, by your discomfort is probably, you know, reflecting in him pretty, pretty easily. It's a high bar to say that, to, you know, to put your partner at ease, you need to become comfortable with bestiality, uh, right, the porn absolutely. or the practice. And so, you know, it seems a legitimate, sensible, considerate workaround just to blot that out, to yeah, not absolutely. address or see that or, or you know, wish it away uh but 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 i think you hit on something there where the, the the partner the furry partner is struggling with some shame that's maybe exacerbated by his partner's discomfort because when he describes their sex and it seems like there's a lot of problems with their sex the, the caller kept emphasizing how he has to do all the work and seemed like was a little resentful about that as i think he would have a right to be if indeed he's having to do all the work but it seems like when you know when they're having sex and the furry boyfriend comes first Furry boyfriend is then sort of seized by these anxieties. And I just wonder if the furry boyfriend at that moment, because he's not comfortable with his own desires and his own sexual interests, is just having that kind of post-orgasmic self-loathing regret that some people have, that some you know very kinky people have who have not fully accepted 
their kinks. The, you know, they're they're turned on, they're turned on, they're turned on. They come, and then, boom, they feel really uncomfortable with the things that turn them on. They they're they're washed over with self loathing. Right. Absolutely. And my, my feeling is just that, you know, be careful not to heap additional shame onto your partner during those moments or you're going to create kind of a feedback loop of your partner associating that shame now with you. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be that's, it's going to be kind of hard for them to become turned on in your presence if they start, you know, really associating that shame with you and not just with their kink. Right. But if the, but if the partner's having this problem, then the partner is not in what I would call good working order erotically or sexually. And it's not about getting them to a couple's counselor to process this. It's about getting the partner to take responsibility for and own it and maybe get himself to a counselor or therapist that he can open up with about this, a sex positive counselor or therapist who doesn't smile on bestiality, which is rightly in many places a crime, but can help him process and understand his kinks and turn ons. Yeah. In no way do I condone bestiality, but I think it's just important not to shame the desire for that. Maybe to incorporate some of it in role play. If it's something you can get yourself comfortable with in that sense, and then, you know, your partner is maybe in being indulged in a way that is safe, sane, and consensual without worrying about it becoming, you know, actual offending bestiality, right? Because that's right. not something anybody's going to be down with. But there are a lot of issues at play here that, you know, we could take the bestiality sort of red flag uh, out of it. You know. Yeah, the boyfriend's got a lot of internalized shame issues that I think are, are getting in the way of any relationship being healthy, right? And that's going to be something to process before this can get back on its feet. And, and a porn addiction problem, if he can only get turned on looking at this particular kind of porn, uh, the furry porn or the bestiality porn, if his focus isn't on the intimacy with his partner, if he's just laying there you know, while his partner, quote unquote, does all the work, you know, and he's staring at his phone or staring at a, a laptop computer open next to him on the bed and consuming porn and not really present there's a lot else at, at play here that, well that, i'm just you know dan i'm gonna push back on that as a quirky millennial for just a minute because i <laughs> actually know a lot of my furry friends who actually have relationships that are very much built on the intimacy coming from a role play and then they basically just roll over and have sex when they're at, basically at the, the moment of orgasm and the sex is really secondary to the fantasy of their relationship. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but sometimes people really do just enjoy engaging with each other as a fantasy character. And then the sex is actually kind of secondary. So, you know, I think it might be a bit of a mismatch here. Like we talk about polyamory monogamous mismatch. So this might be kind of a bit of a furry, you know, kind of mundane mismatch, which could also be a little bit of an issue here. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's why I think a lot of people in the furry community tend to date within the community because when you're kind of this fantasy oriented and what arouses you, it can be kind of difficult to kind of just enjoy vanilla sex. And I think that's part of the issue here as well. So this would come to recognizing a case of sexual incompatibility. And right. Despite yeah. everything else that works, you know, this is what, uh, you know, we often get this at the podcast and probably you get it at your own sex and relationship advice podcast too. Everything's great. I love him. We get along. We share so many common interests. It's all good. It's all wonderful. But the, the sex, sex doesn't work. Exactly. The sex doesn't work. And you know what? Yeah. If the sex doesn't work in a sexually exclusive or even in a, you know, sex is important to the relationship relationship. That's, a reason enough to, to, to end it if, if the sex doesn't work and it's and frustration and resentment will grow over time and it's going to end the relationship anyway. And if you kick that can down the road and you allow the sexual incompatibility or disconnect to eat at the relationship, then you're not going to be able to salvage a friendship out of it when you ultimately inevitably part because the sex doesn't work. You know, Dan, I can also say you can try, you know, pegging your boyfriend with a knotted cock. If you haven't heard of Bad Dragon, you can check out baddragon.com and they can help you out with that. So maybe maybe bringing that fantasy into into reality can can be a little bit more fun 
that there are a lot of people who really do enjoy kind of the, the sexual aspect of animals in the form of role play and, you know, using toys. And maybe a toy would be enough to make this work. You know, maybe you can help your partner just play with a toy and that can actually be enough to excite both of you. You know, but if it's a libido killer for the non-furry partner, any sort of uh, furrydom or any sort of hint at or reference to erotically the animal kingdom, then you just have to recognize that you're not a match. Absolutely. Then you're, you're at a DTMFA through no fault of your own. That's just a no fault divorce, right? That's just, well, you know, that's just incompatibility. One more complication I want to introduce is I've had some people point out to me what they described as uh, bestiality porn, and it was really anthropomorphic furry pornography, that they were kind of drawings of fox people or lion people with human genitalia and and human characteristics uh, having sex. And I've had people look at that and say, oh, my God, this is bestiality porn. And it's like, no, that's something different. As a member of the furry community, how would you describe that porn and how is that kind of porn different from bestiality if indeed that's the case here? So one thing is keep in mind, it's just a drawing for one thing. So obviously no one's being harmed by a drawing. But another thing, it's just people, again, are people eroticize the characteristics of animals because they're hot. I mean, Egyptians built gods around animals because they found them to be powerful and to be a source of, of power. And some people want to eroticize that. And so they give human characters, anthropomorphic characters, these animal traits, and people find it hot. So mm-hmm. you can find, you know, and so that's just something that people want to enjoy in art. And so, I mean, that's obviously not harming anyone. And it's, you no know, animals were harmed in the making of that, you know, someone's fantasy idea come into a, a piece of paper, right? And we, want, and we want that distinction to be clear, that the bestiality pornography is not the same thing as anthropomorphic furry porn, which is almost right. always drawings. Uh, and animation, but isn't the same thing. That those are distinct categories. And it is a thriving uh, kind of cottage industry in the furry community to draw this, this stuff. Yeah, that's it's a booming industry. But yeah, it's, no one's being harmed by it. Before we let you go, quickly, where can people find your podcast and what are they going to hear when they come over to Feral Attraction to hear your sex and relationship advice with your co-host, Matrico? Yeah, so uh, we're at feralattraction.com and uh, we do a weekly advice column and also a podcast. Uh, we kind of do a, a topic-based show where we discuss like a mindfulness topic or a kind of stoicism-based approach to relationships, non-traditional relationships, uh, DS relationships, polyamory, open relationships from a furry perspective. And we kind of we'll primarily service the furry fandom, but we welcome questions and comments from everybody. So check us out at feralattraction.com. Hey, Viro, thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old female without a word for my sexuality, and I was just calling about finding a unicorn. Me and my husband have been together for seven years, and we've talked about this a lot. Um, Obviously, this is our first time, and I think I found her. She works at my local CVS, and today when I bought supplies, we made eyes, and we talked for way longer than I should have been at the register, and I was trying to think of how to ask her and I already know exactly what's going to happen the whole night. We planned everything, but I was thinking about handing her a note next time I'm in there saying, will you be our unicorn with my phone number? If she's interested, I'm sure not that not everyone knows what that means, but if she's interested at all, maybe she'll Google it or ask me for questions. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. The first thing I have to say is you can't know exactly how the night is going to go. That three-way with your special unicorn is going to go. It can't be all planned out when you've not yet met or secured the unicorn that you're going to have that night with. Because the third in a three-way, they have desires. They have fantasies of their own. They have limits and boundaries. 
And they have to be a part of that negotiation. They have to be a part of the planning of that night. So whatever preconceptions you and your boyfriend have about the very special night you're going to have with that very special unicorn, unless you're hiring a sex worker and you can hand them a script and even then a sex worker can pass if they're not interested in the plan that you guys have constructed in the absence of somebody else's input, you're going to have to get to yes with her before you finalize that plan. Everybody, everybody out there who can hear the sound of my voice, every couple out there who's interested in having a three-way, it's not just about you two. It's about your very special guest star, too. It's about their fantasies, their desires, their comfort levels, their limits, their boundaries, their plan. What they want out of that experience has to be incorporated, accommodated, and negotiated. So the first thing I would advise you to do, caller, is to take the plan that you and your boyfriend have made and feed it into a shredder. It can be a fantasy that you hold on to, but it's not a plan. It's not a script that this woman or any other woman that you two meet has to follow. All right. She works at CVS. People who work retail, people who work at Starbucks, people who work at the Nordstrom shoe counter, wherever else you're encountering friendly service people, it's literally their job to smile and be nice. And often people misinterpret that friendly attention for sexual interest. That doesn't mean that people who work at Starbucks, work at the Nordstrom shoe counter, work at the CVS, aren't sometimes attracted to people who come into their store on the regular. You can be attracted to the barista or the lady at the CVS counter, and the barista or the lady at the CVS counter can be attracted to you too. But you, as the customer, are a lot likelier to be misreading signals than the other way around. So you have to be very careful. And handing the CVS lady a note that says, my boyfriend and I would like to fuck you, is a little brash, is a little bold. What you want to engineer is some contact social, perhaps first, outside of this commodified relationship at the CVS, outside of this hierarchical relationship at the CVS, where she could literally be fired for being rude to a customer. You want to make sure, you want to determine that they're actually perhaps open to being with you. So what I think you want to do without being too creepy about it is keep your eyes open in case you should run into this woman on the street, in a bar, in a cafe, in a restaurant, and walk up and say hi. Not say, I'd like to fuck you and so would my boyfriend. Here's our 10-point fuck plan. Are you willing to follow the script? But just to say hi. And if what you get back from her in this non-work environment – during this non-work contact where she's not literally being paid to be nice to you, isn't as friendly, isn't as ingratiating, then she probably isn't interested in you the way that you mistakenly assumed she might be based on those interactions that you had at the CVS. But if she is friendly, if you run into her in a Starbucks and she invites you to sit with her and have coffee and chit-chat, maybe. That doesn't mean she wants to have a three-way with you necessarily. Maybe she's monogamous. Maybe she's in a relationship. Maybe she just thought you were a cool and fun and nice person and was attracted to you in a friendly way, not in a fuck you and your boyfriend at the same time way. You have to ascertain those things carefully one piece at a time before you hand her your 10-point three-way plan. Hi, Dan. This is a 31-year-old male in the Midwest. Recently, um, I've always considered myself straight. But I recently uh, met a tea girl, and I've kind of been, uh, well, I, you know, I like her. I liked her before I actually knew, and she was pretty upfront with the information after just a couple conversations, but I still continue to talk to her. Now, I really, really like her, and I, I do want to continue my relationship and see where it goes, but 
I don't necessarily have any interest in the, I said the genital parts. She's pre-surgery and um, I haven't even had that discussion of whether she wants it or not. She just kind of told me she's pre-surgery. Um, so it kind of implicates that she does want to get it, but um, I don't know. I just don't know how I've, I feel about it. And what's the proper and like respectful way to have that conversation of being like, I don't know where this is. I've always been straight. I've always been with, you know, the opposite sex. I consider her a woman and uh, I really, really like her. I just want to be completely respectful and uh, give her everything that she deserves. If Dick is a deal breaker for you, if it's absolutely positively not something, however much you like this woman, however much you regard her as a woman, and she indeed is a woman, if it's not something you can ever get past, I think it would be kinder and more respectful for you to not continue to see her romantically, maybe to continue to see her as a friend. If you're not into Dick, you're not into Dick. And this woman right now, and perhaps forever, has a Dick. Not all trans women get surgery. That she mentioned she was pre-op doesn't mean that she is one day going to be post-op or even intends to op at all ever. That's a whole other conversation you might need to have with her. It could just be that that's the word that fell out of her mouth when you guys were talking about it and she was letting you know that if indeed you did become intimate, not to expect that she had had bottom surgery, sex confirmation surgery down below. And if you're not into dick, she's not the right person for you. Right now, maybe she does intend to have bottom surgery at some point. That's a conversation you could have with her if you continue to see her. You could also continue to see her and be open to the possibility that your dick limit might be something that you can get past for her. There are certainly guys out there who with trans women who didn't expect that they would ever be able to be with a trans woman but came to see her genitals as her genitals and got past the dick barrier. Those guys are out there. You have to ask yourself if you think you could be one of those guys. And if the answer is no, and you don't think you could be that guy, then I don't think you should waste her time dating her. And I would hate for you to date her and for her to feel rushed to get bottom surgery to keep you or coerced into getting bottom surgery that she didn't want to get to keep you. Better to recognize a, a fundamental basic incompatibility and part as friends and to become further entangled and when you do have to pull apart, really do someone more damage, more emotional damage than you needed to. And then you would have if you'd ended it at the outset, if you'd ended it early. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a woman living in Denver, Colorado, and I'm calling with a question uh, about my in-laws, the in-laws-to-be. Uh, my fiancé and I have been together about six years, and she is great, and we are great. Um, my in-laws are not great uh, ever, you know, for the last few years, maybe four years, they've decided that I am not, uh, you could say not good enough, not um, from a wealthy enough background uh, to directly quote. They've said I have too many tattoos and not enough credentials um, to become a part of their family, essentially. As you might surmise, uh, my, my fiance has said, too bad, you're crazy, we're still going to get married, all of these things we're kind of fighting against this together. So we're getting married in September, um, and we're at the point now where um, his parents don't really know me all that well, and they're asking to meet my parents. His mom asked us a few months ago, and so we said, no, you can't meet her parents, you have to get to know her first. 
kind of forcing them to be around me in a sense. We had the visit, it was whatever, they left. And now the father, his father is saying, that visit wasn't good enough. I still want to meet her parents to talk to them before the wedding. So my initial, this is what, this is what my questions are around. Uh, my initial instinct is to say, fuck you. You hardly even know me. What's the point of you meeting my parents? I feel super protective. He has been nothing but rude to me. Um, and so, so no, I don't want you to meet my family. I think you are just as ill-fit for my family as, as, you think I am for yours, so minimizing the contact would be great. Um, we're currently trying to find out what his motives are to meet my family now. The first thing he said was, I want to ask them some questions. And we think, well, why don't you just, he just doesn't really even speak to me. He's either outwardly rude or he doesn't speak to me. Um, so I guess I want a third, third-party perspective. Everyone I ask, of course, thinks whatever I say is right because we're kind of being sat down in this situation or whatever, but <clears throat> what do you think, Dan? Should we let mean, terrible in-laws meet my parents before the wedding just because they're asking to, or should we say, no, fuck off? Your parents are going to meet your fiancé's parents at some point. So the question isn't whether or not you're ever going to allow your fiancé's asshole father to meet your parents, but when your fiancé's asshole father is going to meet your parents. The rehearsal dinner? The wedding itself, the reception, at what point would you like that consequential and you fear contentious meeting to happen? I would if I were in your shoes, despite not wanting to give my asshole future father-in-law an inch because he'd been so rude to me, if everything, of course, unfolded the way you describe it, I would want to get that meeting out of the way for my own reasons and for my own sense of security and sanity to prevent there being a big explosion on the wedding day to lance the boil well in advance. Also to get whatever brownie points you might get for being the bigger person, for being the change you want to see in your asshole father-in-law. Say, oh, you want to meet my parents? Okay, everyone's coming over for dinner. I'm going to invite my mom and dad over for dinner, invite you and your asshole wife over for dinner, and everybody can meet. Bring the families together. And we can all have a conversation together. And then you can be there and be in the room for it. Be in the room where it happens, like they sing on Broadway. Not to give your asshole father-in-law everything that he wants, not to just cave to his demands, but for your own reasons. To immunize, hopefully, the wedding itself and the reception itself and the rehearsal dinner itself from drama. Because if what your future asshole father-in-law wants is drama, then drama is what he's going to get at this first meeting. So why not get that first meeting out of the way well in advance. And it'll also be a way for you to test your fiance and determine whether or not you do want to be married to this person for the rest of your life, potentially, theoretically. Because if his father does go bananas, if his father is an asshole to your parents and your fiance doesn't stand up to him, doesn't stand up for you, doesn't stand up for his future mother-in-law and father-in-law, then is that someone that you want to be with? Is that the man you want to marry? So irrespective of your current asshole future father-in-law's desires, I think for your own reasons, you should engineer this meeting and engineer it soon. Hi, Dan. Got to take an issue with just one small bit of the advice you gave to the guy in episode 556 who doesn't know how to not seem desperate when talking to girls. 
Um, I think most of your advice is spot on. That column is evergreen, really. But um, telling him to just stop hanging out with the girl as soon as she uh, registers that she's not interested in dating him is just going to, like, send home that any gestures of friendship that he made towards her were fraudulent and were, like, just designed to entice her into a date. Um, if this dude wants to be better at seeming non-desperate in his relationships, he's going to have to first develop the skill to be friends with women in a genuine way and not just as a potential dating prospect. You know, you don't want to sink too much time into pining for someone without telling them that you have feelings for them, sure, but, you know, you actually do have to first develop the basic relationship skills of being on friendly terms with women before you can really convey to them that you're a trustworthy dating prospect. So, yeah, he uh, shouldn't just stop and uh, peace out on any uh, girls who aren't interested in dating him. He should learn to be a friend first, too. Hi, Dan. This is a response to episode 556 to the guy who wanted to get his first girlfriend. And as a fellow early 20-something guy who has not had a committed relationship or past sexual experience, follow Dan's advice. Just do everything Dan told you. And to add to that, if you are doing something to improve yourself or change your opportunities that doesn't feel right or makes you feel insecure, do something else that makes you feel confident. Doing things that you like to do and things that make you feel radiant in yourself is going to attract people. Things that make you feel good is going to make you a better person and make you more attractive. Hi, Dan. Um, I was calling in response to the 20-year-old who's really worried about feeling desperate or acting desperate when getting into a new relationship for the first time. One piece of advice that I have from the female end of things is learn how to cook. It's brilliant. No girl that I know would ever turn that down or think of it generally as a negative character trait. It works. And plus, you'll get to try a whole bunch of new foods and see more worldly and be more worldly, potentially. Learn how to cook. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, please do. Hey, Magnum listeners, subscribers, we appreciate you so much. Thank you for subscribing. If you like the show, we want to ask you to do us a favor. Call in and tell the micro listeners why they should subscribe. Just a quick call, 30 seconds a minute. Let us know why you subscribe and why others should subscribe, and we will play the best ones for the micro listeners. We love you, Magnum subscribers, and thank you. 206-302-2064. Give us a buzz. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Seth Stevens Davidowitz on Twitter at SethS underscore D. And be sure to listen to the Feral Attraction podcast and follow them on Twitter at FeralAttractFM. Also be sure to read my sex advice column, Savage Love, every week in the Baltimore City Paper and other newspapers all across the world. And if you like listening to me rant about politics, you can find a lot more of that on Blabbermouth, the Stranger's weekly politics podcast with me, host Eli Sanders, and millennial twerp Rich Smith. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast Thanks for downloading.